Within each of us, there is an intense need to feel that we belong. This feeling of unity and togetherness comes through the warmth of a smile, a handshake, or a hug, through laughter and unspoken demonstrations of love. It comes in the quiet, reverent moments of soft conversation and in listening. Hey, Autumn Ridge Church. Obviously, it is a bit strange that I'm coming to you via video. This is a um, strange weekend. This is a, this is a weird weekend. The reason that I'm coming to you via video right now uh, is because this week I tested positive for COVID. I might sound a little off. I actually feel uh, great. Uh, I wish I could be with you in the room right now. It's killing me that I can't be here, uh, but we're just trying to be wise and loving, and I know that you understand. Right now, uh, five of our pastors have tested positive uh, for COVID. To the best of uh, my knowledge, everybody is mostly okay, but I want to ask you uh, just to pray for everyone that we uh, recover quickly. But even though we can't all be in the same room together right now, we're gonna, we're gonna proceed. We're gonna keep going uh, with our series on neighboring. And next week, this is what we're doing. We're, we're ending the series with what we're calling a neighborhood block party. We've invited uh, 1,500 residences who live within one uh, mile radius of our church property to come and be a part of this. I, I want you to be here uh, to be a part of this. Honestly, right now, I think this is something that we need uh, to be together, to relax together, to enjoy a sweet time uh, together. I'm confident that I and the rest of our pastors will be back healthy uh, and ready to be with you, and I hope that you'll plan uh, to be there for that. But today, we're just gonna keep going. We're gonna continue uh, to move forward in our series, Neighboring, and what we've been talking about is this, what is the most important thing that we can do with our life according to Jesus? There was a time, this religious expert, this, uh, this guy who was a religious leader who came to Jesus and asked that question, what's the most important command? What's the rule that I need to follow essentially? What's the most important thing that I can do with my life? And this is how Jesus responded. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus permanently fused together love for God and love for people. Or you could try to just focus on one and not the other. You could try to love God and not love people. You could try to love people and, and not love God. But what you will discover is that you fall short and what you end up experiencing is something less than love, especially something less than the kind of love that Jesus defined. And you probably know this too, right? Uh, unfortunately, religious history is full of people trying to pick and choose who they're going to love and who they're not going to love. It's completely understandable to ask this question, well, who fits in the neighbor category? Who do I have to love? Who do I not have to love? And in response to that, Jesus says to us, wrong question. And it's really our series thesis. The real question isn't, who is your neighbor? It's our you a neighbor. And I know you. I know this is something that you value. I know this is something that's important to you. I know this is something that you want to be a part of. But I'm just going to ask kind of a, a vulnerable question, but I hope feels like a very honest and practical question. What happens 
when you are trying to be a good neighbor to someone and they are making it more difficult than it needs to be. As a matter of fact, let me ask the question this way. What do you do when someone puts a burden on you that you didn't ask for? And I realize that some of us came in here with heavy hearts today. Some of us came in here today because we have heavy news weighing on us. And you might be saying, Rick, right now, that's probably a good question. I just can't handle being challenged right now. And if that's where you're coming from, I wanna give you permission to lean back. Because everything that we talk about and an answer to this question is based on what Jesus did for us. And today, I just want you to have permission to be encouraged by what Jesus has done for you. And if you're in a place where you're saying, Rick, I just can't handle a challenge right now, just lean back and be encouraged by what Jesus has done for you. If you're in a place right now where you're saying, Rick, I, this kind of describes my situation, my neighborhood, my life. I need the answer to this question. I want to encourage you to lean in because we've got good news for you today. Or whether you're ready to lean in or you need to lean back, there is hope and there's encouragement and there's good news for every single one of us today. I wanna show you a picture. Uh, this was a neighborhood that I used to live in uh, when I lived in Utah. As a matter of fact, this was my house uh, right here. Doesn't that look charming? Doesn't that look like a peaceful neighborhood? Well, that's what I thought too when I first moved in. If you've never lived in Utah, this is what you need to know about the state of Utah. It is hands down the most religious state in our country. It's a very unique place. The kind of, uh, the people who go to churches like this one um, at most would make up 2%, just 2% of the state's uh, population, and yet over 90% uh, of the state are uh, deeply religious, highly devoted uh, to a religion that's something other uh, than Bible-only uh, Christianity. Now, how that had an impact on, um, on, on the Salt Lake Valley is pretty important. What you need to know is the religious climate is always at a 10 at intensity uh, in Utah. Sometimes it goes to 11, but it's always a 10. And here's the impact. It's a culture that loved making rules and loved keeping rules. Let me ask you, which one do you like? Do you like making rules? Or do you like keeping rules? Personally, I like making the rules. I don't like having to keep the rules. Now, inside of this, uh, of this state, this is my little neighborhood, and we had, a, we had an HOA, and we were highly impacted by the culture that was around us. If you're not familiar with an HOA, it stands for Hell's Occupant Association. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it stands for HOA. Um, but our HOA was highly impacted by the, by the culture. We loved making rules. We loved enforcing rules. And what that meant is that we fought a lot and we loved to fight over parking. And one night, uh, my wife was hosting uh, uh, a lot of ladies over to the house for, for a Bible study. And uh, all of a sudden, without warning, a tow truck showed up and tried to tow all the cars off the street. Our little HOA had a contract with a local tow truck company. And if you had a special secret code, you could call that company, you could give them the code, and they would come and tow away all the cars that were parked on the street. Somehow, that secret code got out and people began to uh, anonymously try to have their neighbor's cars uh, towed away. Uh, one night, uh, we were trying to solve this problem at an HOA meeting, and there was a woman, and she just said, listen, I've got, uh, I've got four teenage daughters. We're trying to come up with a parking situation uh, that's safe for them. What would you suggest? And this is what someone said, and I quote, no one told you to have so many kids. 
Now, if you were in the dominant uh, religious group, you got more parking privileges than other people got. Um, it started to get a bit dicey. People were getting into physical altercations with each other. Now, in this neighborhood, uh, probably my favorite neighbor was a guy named Eric. Eric was from California. He was an atheist. He didn't understand all the religious fervor. He didn't understand the love affair uh, with rule making and rule keeping. So he started walking through the neighborhood every night, drinking wine straight out of the bottle just because he knew that it messed with people. This is my neighborhood. This is what I learned. You can pick your neighborhood, but you can't pick your neighbors. What do you do? What do you do when you're relationally connected to people who you didn't choose and who you don't understand? What do you do when you're relationally connected to people who make choices that you can't stand? What do you do when you're relationally connected to people who put burdens on you that you didn't even ask for? Believe it or not, in probably his famous sermon ever called the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave us a framework. He, he gave us truth related to these kinds of scenarios. And today we're going to look at a section of the Sermon on the Mount, an incredibly helpful message that Jesus gave. And we're gonna look at it in Matthew chapter five. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now, unfortunately, over the years, this uh, statement, an eye for an eye, has been misunderstood. People think that it means, well, if someone hurts you, you gotta hurt them back. That's not what it means. This is actually Jesus quoting civil law, not uh, criminal law. And the civil law meant when someone has wronged you, the restitution should not exceed how badly they hurt you. It was intended to be just. It was intended to be fair. And the idea is this, you don't try to get out of somebody as much as you can get. You don't try to make them pay you more than they owe or more than uh, you deserve from them. And then Jesus said, don't resist an evil person. And that might be a little bit confusing because it might feel like, what am I supposed to collaborate with an evil person? Really, the idea behind this word is, do not be hostile. Be fair, be just. Do not try to get more out of them than you, uh, than you should. And don't be hostile to them. This is an injunction against taking revenge. Jesus continues. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. This is not a statement about pacifism. This is not Jesus saying, you're not allowed to defend yourself or defend other people if you are attacked violently. Yes, it's true. This is a kind of assault, but what's really going on here, if you're slapped on the right cheek, it means that someone has backhanded slapped you in the face. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to shame you. They're trying to embarrass you. They're trying to rob you of social standing. And what Jesus is saying, when someone does that to you, you don't have to play by their rules shock them and shock everyone else who is watching by responding with a radical humility. His sermon continues. Jesus says, and if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. To which I have to say, what, are you kidding me? Jesus, are you against private property? Jesus, is this your way of saying, if someone wants to come and take something of mine, I have to give it. And not only do I have to give them what they ask for, I have to give them even more. That's not at all what's going on here. Again, Jesus is quoting something from their civil law code. This is what this means. When you are sued and there is a judgment against you because you are in the wrong, pay the settlement, 
Don't fight the settlement. And as a matter of fact, don't just pay the settlement that has been ruled against you. Pay more than what you're required to pay. So if we go back to the first statement, Jesus is saying, reject revenge. Don't be hostile. Don't try to get someone to pay more than they owe. But now he's saying, when you're in the wrong, don't fight them. Embrace repentance and restitution and pay back more than you owe. And then Jesus says this, if anyone, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. In the Roman world, this was the law. If a Roman soldier said to you, hey, you have to carry my gear, they could force you to carry their gear for one mile, but they could not make you go one step further. It didn't matter how inconvenient it was for you. It didn't matter what you were doing. At any time, a Roman soldier could say, hey, you have to carry my gear, and you had to take it for a full mile. And Jesus said, don't just go one mile. Go with them two miles. And here Jesus is just conceding. People are going to exploit you. People are intentionally going to take advantage of you. But don't let that be a reason. Don't let that be an excuse to stop deploying the powerful forces of kindness and generosity. Yeah, people are going to exploit you. Yeah, people are going to try and take advantage of you. But don't let the way that they treat you determine the kind of person that you're going to be. Love them in response in the same way that I've loved you. This is exactly what Jesus did for us. This is exactly how he's loved us and he's inviting us into loving others and responding to others in the exact same way. This section is wrapped up with this statement. Jesus said, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. I think a fair way to summarize what Jesus is saying is this. We should hold our things and our stuff and our money like this so we could hold on to each other like this. Hold on to our stuff like this so that we could hold on to each other like this. And if you've been keeping track with what we're talking about and the things that Jesus said, this is a way to summarize all that he said to us thus far. Reject revenge and reject hostility. Embrace repentance and restitution when we are in the wrong and extend uncommon generosity. So what do you do when someone puts a burden on you that you didn't even ask for? However you respond, the response needs to live inside of this framework. Reject revenge, embrace repentance and restitution, and extend uncommon generosity. Now, when Jesus said these words, we gotta be honest, when Jesus said these words, they would have gone off like a bomb when people heard them. There has never been a time in history or a place on this planet when these words from Jesus would not be provocative. They are provocative, aren't they? They are challenging. And I think it's one of the reasons that's led some Bible teachers and some Bible scholars to suggest, you know what? Jesus was being hyperbolic. Jesus was engaging in exaggeration. What do you think? Was Jesus exaggerating? I don't know. Maybe he was exaggerating. But even if he was exaggerating, I don't think it gets me off the hook for taking him seriously. You're a smart crowd. Let me just remind us all of something that you guys already know. Exaggerations aren't made to diminish a point, but to magnify one. Jesus was communicating something. Jesus was teaching something. Jesus was commanding something. So what is that something? What is the point? 
I want to share with you some observations that I'm making from reading this text, and they're having an impact on how I think, and, and maybe they'll have an impact on how you think as well. Here's the first one. You can't pick how many people you're relationally connected to. And maybe this one doesn't seem obviously as coming out of the text, but if you hang with me for a moment, I think you see, you'll see that it will. I'm just gonna ask you to think with me. We're gonna go back to week one of this message series when Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. There's a guy who was left for dead on the side of the road and all, the people who walked by him and ignored him, the implication was is that they were relationally connected to him. They had an obligation to him, even though he was a stranger. And the implication for us is we're relationally connected to and obligated to people who we don't even know. But as we look in this passage that we, uh, from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, don't just go one mile, go two. And what Jesus is saying is those Roman soldiers who you don't even want in your country, they're an occupying force. You are relationally connected to them. You have an obligation to them. You don't get to see them in the category as other I mean, the reality check that Jesus handed down is you are relationally connected to and obligated to people who are your enemies. Here's another observation. You can't pick the behavior of people you're relationally connected to. I wish we could, but we can't. Let's go a little bit further with this. You can't pick what the people who are relationally connected to you contribute to you. So what is it that we get to pick? Is there anything that we're in control of? And I think this is the big point that Jesus is pushing us to. You can pick what you contribute to the people who are relationally connected to you. If we could be together in the same room right now and you had an opportunity to tell stories, you could talk about things in your neighborhood, your apartment building, your work, or some other arena that you're involved in and how people are just making your life more difficult. Maybe they're bringing hostility to you. Maybe they're putting a burden on you. And if you talked about it, it would be understandable if you said, this is not fair. It probably isn't. It'd be understandable for you to say they're wrong. They probably are. But in light of what we've heard from Jesus, when someone puts a burden on you, what are you supposed to do? I wish I could, but I can't give a simple or easy answer. Any person who tries to give you a simple or an easy answer is a naive person. However you respond to that situation, and I wanna encourage you to respond with wisdom, but also respond inside of the framework that Jesus gave us. Reject revenge and reject hostility. Embrace repentance and restitution. When we're wrong, we got to own it and extend uncommon generosity. This is neighboring according to Jesus. And I just want to read a few more things that Jesus said next in his sermon. He said this, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do you not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. And I really wanna focus in on this word right here, perfection. It's a word that carries with the idea of completion or maturity, Right before Jesus died, when he spoke his final words on the cross, uh, he said, it is finished. In Greek, that's just one word, and that one word is a version of this word. And so if we read this and we hear Jesus saying, don't ever make a mistake, we're misunderstanding what he's intending to communicate. He's saying, be mature, be complete. Another way that we can understand that is to be fully integrated. I have a smartphone. You guys have smartphones, probably just like you. Uh, I've got some addictions to too many apps that I spend too much time on. 
And the apps that I have on my phone, they don't make my phone work. It's the operating system that makes the phone work, and it's the operating system that accommodates the apps. And this is just the way that it is when we follow Jesus. For all of us, when we first follow Jesus, it's like he is an app, not the operating system. But this right here, be perfect, means growing into completeness or maturity where Jesus becomes the operating system of our lives. This is why our mission statement is this, to lead people to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. And Jesus being our guiding authority, him and his teaching and his gospel being our operating system. That doesn't happen by accident. There is an intentional pathway that we have to put ourselves on. This is what we talk about when we talk about that pathway about being fully devoted. It's authority, identity, activity. Jesus is my authority. I find joy in submitting to him and his word. He's my identity. I find joy in defining myself by what he did, not what I do. And I find joy in loving other people the way that that he has loved me. Every single one of us were given an operating system or the word that's often used for that is worldview. Every single one of us were given one when we were born. We didn't pick one. We didn't choose one. It was just given to us based on where we were born and when we were born. And our worldview or our operating system isn't something that we thought about and yet is the framework by which we think about everything. And depending on where you were born and when you were born and the kind of culture you were born into, that determined the worldview or the operating system by which you lived your life. And there are a variety of different types of cultures, but here are two very common ones. A guilt-innocence culture and an honor-shame culture. A guilt-innocence culture focuses on the individual, focuses on laws and rules, and focuses on rights. An honor-shame culture focuses on family relationships, uh, community responsibility, and social standing. One is not more right than the other. One is not better than the other. They both have their advantages. They both have their disadvantages. If you were born in the United States, this is probably the operating system that you inherited. If you were born in a non-Western culture, this is probably the operating system you inherited. If you are from the United States and you are very young, it probably feels like you have a confusing combination of these two things. This is the one that I grew up with. This is the one that, that I inherited. So I've got a lot of experience with the teaching of Jesus uh, contradicting my operating system, contradicting my worldview. And the question that I've had to wrestle down is this, am I gonna happily transition to the authority of Jesus and his gospel and his teaching being my worldview, being my operating system, or am I gonna treat him like an app that I turn to from time to time? If you grew up in the same kind of worldview and operating system that I did, you probably can relate to this. In a guilt-innocence culture, when I'm wronged and you're wrong, it's a license for all kinds of things. When I'm the one who's wronged and you're the one who did it, it's a license for fighting, for shaming, for gossiping, for withholding forgiveness, for trying to take something from you that you now owe me. It is a license for shaming and divisiveness and division. And the way that we can summarize all of those things is when I'm wronged and you're the one who's wrong, it's a license for payback. And this is the culture that I grew up in. And the culture that I grew up in and the operating system that, that I grew up with is uh, pushing me to elevate this question. Who is right and who is wrong? It's not that there's no value to that question. It's not that that question is never important. It's that this question is not the most important question but transitioning to Jesus as my authority, Jesus and his word being my operating system, means I replace this with a better question, 
And the question is, what does love require of me? This is what the gospel says to me. Rick, you were wrong. You have more sin than you even realize. You're more guilty than you even realize that I have lived my life and I've been an enemy to Jesus and he has been a friend to me in return. He has responded to me with love and kindness and gentleness and forgiveness and grace. And when you experience that, it will change you from the inside out and it compels us to love all other people in the same way that we've been loved. There's a church the Apostle Paul wrote to and they were vulnerable to harshness and hard-heartedness. And so the Apostle Paul wrote this. He said, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Neighboring in the way that Jesus defined, loving other people in the way that Jesus defined, it doesn't come to us naturally. And that's okay. It comes to us supernaturally. It comes as we trust in him and follow him. And so let's let our bottom line be this. We can pay back what's been done to us or we can pay forward what's been done for us. We can pay back what's been done to us or we can pay forward to what's been done for us. And I'm saying, let's grow in this. Let's mature in this. Let's use Jesus's word. Let's be perfected in this. And do you know what this requires? It requires community. It requires us getting together in small groups. It's why they're so important. It's why getting on a team is so important. It's we grow in this. We're perfected in this by loving each other this way. And our ability to love others this way is never going to outpace. It's always going to follow our ability to love each other right here in this way.